It's Tuesday, February 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Happy Tuesday, guys. Howdy. Good long weekends, one and all. You were doing some yes. traveling, Joe. You yeah, were... we were in Paris and Barcelona. It was pretty sweet. And you're angry that you're back. <laughs> I'm was angry. That, yeah, was that just a spur of the moment trip, or was that kind of a... No, we'd, we'd been talking about going for a while. One of my wife's best friends lives outside Barcelona, and... Wanted to make the trip while the timing was good. Awesome. All right. Well, we got a lot to get to today. We have another merger in the works. We are going to talk once again for the second time in one week. We're going to talk about the business of bourbon. We will dip into the full mailbag. uh, But we begin today with Google. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Google is developing plans to launch retail stores in the United States. Uh, Joe, no details yet on where or when the stores would open, uh, but they would likely sell Google brand, uh, branded devices. I will probably live in one. <laughs> I know. You're a Google fan, but yeah. a bricks and mortar store strategy, does that make sense? It does make sense. I think Google needs a better way to distribute their products and showcase them to customers. Um, and that's kind of a wide range. You're talking about phones, talking about tablets. You know, just search. I mean, obviously, we're all pretty familiar with it. But it would be nice if Google had a physical presence where they can market AdWords and how to use their services to small business owners, too. And it would be a great place to demo Google Glasses. Google Glasses, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, Matt, to that point, they tried a couple of years ago to sell the Nexus One online, and that, that kind of fizzled. So, I mean, are you, are you with Joe? You think this is a good strategy? Yeah, I think I am with Joe. I mean, it, so one of the strengths that Apple's had is that, you know, they come out with an iPad or a new device, and as intuitive and easy to understand by a three-year-old that their devices are, it still amazes me that watching people come to the Apple Store and still you know, sit down with one of the geniuses and learn how to use a device. And I just feel like that gives Google an opportunity to actually show how these devices work, show how customers can use them correctly. And I like Joe's point about the small business owner. You know, I, I didn't really think about that angle. That's actually a, a kind of a Google-focused, centric thing that Apple doesn't even have, that Google has. So, But when you think about technology companies and stores, at one end of the spectrum, you have the Apple Store. And maybe at the other end of the spectrum, or certainly further down the line, you've got like the Sony store, which at uh, locally here uh, near the HQ, one next to the Apple which store, is, yeah, which is <laughs> twice oh. as big and has maybe a tenth of the customers. It's exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a little bit it's sad. sad. It's a little bit it's sad, sad for the Sony. So I mean, uh, if, you know, if if the reports are to be believed, uh, Larry Page, the CEO, is. Is it fair to say, Joe, that he uh, is taking some convincing that this is a good strategy? Yes, and they've moved slowly into this. They've done pop-up stores with Chromebooks in London, for example. So it's not like this has been something they've rushed into, but I do think it's smart, and I think there's room for other people to do this, too. I mean, honestly, I think Amazon should have a physical presence, at least in major cities, where people come and pick up items. They can order items. They could buy Kindles and just have more touch points with customers because, you know, they don't need a huge physical presence. But the reality is to better connect with a lot of offline consumers who haven't made that jump and ones who just haven't connected with, you know, physical products from these companies, this is the best way to do it. Matt, when you look at the stock, shares, I believe, have hit a new all-time high. It's over $800 a share now, Google. I know what Joe thinks of the stock, but I'm curious, what do you think of the stock from a valuation standpoint? Does it look... Does it look richly valued, cheaply valued? What do you think? I, I, just as an average investor, the $800 price tag 
Sure. It, there's a little bit of sticker shock there. Sure, sure. But, you know, I and maybe Joe can help me out here, but I, I mean, it trades for 16 or 17 times forward earnings. Is that Yeah, right? it's not very expensive by valuation measures when you actually right. look through those lenses. So, you know, and then I look at, you know, revenue growing in excess of 20% still for probably the next few years at least. Um, you know, all the kind of the all the optionality with the company. I'm certainly not. I mean, $800 is daunting, a daunting number for a lot of individual shareholders, but certainly I can't I can't call it expensive on. on yeah, I'm a happy long-term shareholder. Right. Yeah, I don't think the shares are as cheap as they've been, but like Matt said, I mean, it's growing its top line organically faster than when it's selling on a forward basis, that's a nice price. Shares of Office Depot and Office Max are soaring this morning on reports that the two companies are discussing a merger. And Matt, I finally, yes, solving the need that we all had. <laughs> oh, it's they're huge. Uh, you know they're trying to compete with Staples. Is this going to help? Well, okay. I you know there's a movie there's a movie out there right now called Warm Bodies and I actually haven't seen it but I think it's it's a zombie movie it's right, right it's a zombie movie it's, and it's, I think it's about two zombies maybe two zombies or one zombie that falls in love with another zombie zombies falling in love it's oh, a it's geez. a zombie rom com is that this what you're is, telling me this is worse there than the Abe Lincoln well, vampire this runner. is yeah, right, <laughs> this is kind of how I feel about. Office Depot and Office Max, two zombies getting together. I mean, if you think about it, they're going to compete, right? They're going to compete better with Staples. They're going to they're going to be able to close some stores, consolidate some operations. But that's not really who they're competing with. As Joe, I think, will attest as well. I mean, there's a big gorilla in the room called Amazon. Amazon actually has this thing called Amazon Supply, which supplies over 600,000 products to small businesses. I mean, this... Very this is, aggressively. Right, right. And this is this is who they're competing with. And I think eventually, I mean... If you're a niche big box retailer above 5,000 square feet, not named Costco, Target, or Walmart. Or Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about you right now. And I think that's kind of where Office Depot and Office Max headed, no matter what they do. And how worried can Staples be? Because shares of Staples are up this morning around 12% the last time I checked. So this, this, this seems like one of those things that, from an investing standpoint, it's a certainly a good day for Office Depot and Office Max. But if you're Staples, how... How worried are you about this? I definitely raised my eyebrow when I saw that Staples was up today on this news. I can't think this is – I guess the the winning part for Staples is that there's, there's going to be a lot of consolidation. So when the two office companies that most of us, let's face it, probably didn't even realize the difference between them, when they merge and shut our bunch of stores, that's going to take a lot of competition out there, and that's good for Staples. Probably less irrational pricing going on, but – not a long-term fix for anyone. No. I didn't even know about Amazon supply, which shows you how clued in a, a, an Amazon shareholder I am. That, <laughs> I mean, what what does that mean for Amazon's business uh, on a percentage basis? Oh, I don't. I, I I'm not. I, they haven't disclosed as they. As they I was just going to say. Yeah, as, as, as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, <laughs> no, they're not sharing that. But information. at the same time, that that is a real. It's a real thing. It's out there, and you know, in terms of. You know, if you think about Amazon's distribution capabilities with every, I mean, it just makes so much sense if you're a small business. Why am I going to go to Office Depot or Office Max if I can just get my products cheap, Amazon mailed to me? And 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 one more one more point, you know, um, Office Depot, Office Max, Staples. For a long time, they got most sixty five percent of their revenue roughly comes from s- supplies, and most of those supplies are paper ink cartridges. Yep. Things that we lead, we need less and less of nowadays, um, and I so no matter what, I just feel like there's a there's a good chunk of the revenue that's it's going away. Guess okay. I'm taking back that calligraphy set I bought for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one housekeeping note: if you are a college student or you know a college student who is interested in investing, we're having our fifth annual 
Collegiate Investor Day. Uh, it's here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, Friday, March eighth, and uh, you can. Uh, it's a free event. Uh, we'll be serving lunch. You can meet our analysts and our advisors. Uh, Friday, March eighth. Uh, for more information, you can sign up uh, at our blog, our, our uh, I guess our human resources blog, which is just culture.fool.com. That's culture.fool.com uh, to sign up for our fifth annual Collegiate Investor Day. Uh, last Monday, we talked about Maker's Mark changing the recipe to reduce the amount of alcohol in their signature uh, brand. And I'm happy to report that the backlash was so swift and so powerful that they have reversed course. Uh, in a letter to customers on Sunday, executives wrote, You spoke, we listened, and we're sincere, uh, sincerely sorry that we let you down. Uh, Joe, I, you know... I, I wish you had been in the room because, you know, as we've talked about before. I'm glad I wasn't here. I was going to say, there might I may not have been able to control that. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the bourbon uh, lovers were well represented by myself and Tim Hansen and Jason Moser. But um, is this a smart move for them? Having, recognizing the fact that they still sit, face the same problem, which is that there is not enough supply to keep up with growing demand for this product. Yeah. Well, I think the. The horse has already run out of the barn on this one. I, you know, they, it was really a black eye for them, and I don't want to cover ground that we've already talked about. But Beam, which is the company that now owns Maker's Mark, has been very aggressive about leveraging brands, and that's good and it's bad. When you, when you have a brand like Maker's, which is very strong, or you know, you look at a Coca Cola being kind of the quintessential example, you want to tap that and you want to expand and leverage that brand. So like. You know, Diet Coke, uh, Cherry Coke, et cetera. And Makers rolled out Makers 46, which we've had and enjoyed. Yep. Um, but you can take that too far, like with New Coke. Right. Uh, you don't want to mess up the recipe. And people are just so brand loyal, especially Makers Mark fans. You know, we're, I'm a Makers Mark ambassador. It's a club that they have people sign up for. And these are people who love this product, which is addictive physically. <laughs> they are really into it and they don't want it changed. And I, <clears throat> totally agree with what Maker said about how no one could tell the difference. I absolutely guarantee no one could have told the difference. You, there's no chance you would know, but it doesn't matter. Well, it, it also just seems like the way that they communicated it was just so ham-handed. Because even if that's true, and, I, and that's that's probably true, that but you can't you can't really just come out and say, hey, we've changed the recipe and it's exactly the same. It tastes exactly the same. Because that's, uh, one, it's already shocking news that this core beloved brand is changing. And, you know, to, to go back to the new Coke analogy. Um, but two, you, you don't, I don't think you want to be in the position of telling your most loyal customers, uh, essentially, uh, we know what's best for you. And that's when I look at the way this is communicated. I think that they totally botched it, as opposed to in 2004 when Jack Daniels changed uh, their recipe and lowered the alcohol content. They just they were just incredibly transparent about it and just said, "We're changing the alcohol content. We know this is going to bump some people out, but this is why we're doing it." And that's that. Yeah. Well, like we talked about, I think Jack and Makers have different brand profiles sure. and customer bases, but you know, Makers is already they've already raised prices. <clears throat> pretty aggressively on Maker's Mark. And honestly, I've stopped buying Maker's for the most part because they've, they've kind of priced it out of what I think is a, a fair price for the quality. And there are so many good bourbons coming on the market now chasing this you know swell of demand 
that they can't really afford to keep just pushing these through. They're going to lose customers when they do it. So they're definitely in a position where, you know, they're just trying to take advantage of this huge amount of demand. But it's it's a first-class problem. Though. Well, and how much, just curious, I mean, I haven't followed this story very closely, but how much is this a Facebook, Twitter type of story? Because if you think about it, Coke could do whatever it wanted to do. Nike could change its products. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Jack Daniels eight years ago or nine years ago, I guess now, and so this being out there with, with such a, you know, with the ecosystem of communication yeah. that we have now, right. I just wonder how much that impacted the, the decision and then the reversal of the decision. Yeah, I definitely think there's something to that. And Chris, I know you, know, you used to work in PR, so you probably have some good perspective on this. But situations like this definitely 10, 20 years ago would be a total non-factor. Yeah. And no one would be talking about this. It'd be a total non-event. But these days... You just can't get away with anything like that because some guys will get on a podcast and just trash you. Right. Um, power. Speaking of the Twitter reaction. <laughs> I feel the power coursing <laughs> through my face. Uh, speaking of the Twitter reaction, uh, there was there was some reaction uh, on Twitter from uh, a few of our dozens of listeners. Uh, from Justin uh, Boucher, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Sparks, Nevada, who tweeted, well, that didn't take long. Uh, Graydon Tripp in Roslindale, Massachusetts. I wonder what the Market Foolery team thinks of this news. Uh, and Matthew Luke in Japan, who uh, very nicely wrote, I think you and your dozens of listeners played a small part in reversing this. Congratulations. I, I, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim we're, we're going to get like 0.01%, but that's fine. That's fine. because It's it, huge. It's a basis point. I mean, well, and, it, uh, and, and I said this last week on the show, that this struck me, just from the standpoint of a, a business decision, this struck me as one of those decisions that, well, if they do this, if they change their signature whiskey, then they'll do anything. If they're going to do this for business purposes, this would be like you know Jim Senegal from Costco, who for years and years and years, Wall Street analysts would try and get him to just slightly bump, bump up their, their markup. But Costco marks up. Uh, the conference call basically went like this. So do you guys think maybe you could stop? Giving such great benefits to your employees and maybe raise prices a little. No, next question. Yeah, yeah, and that—that's—that's that's what to me was sort of the long-term potential damage because it just seemed like this was going to be this Pandora's box. Like, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then you'll do anything in the name of business, and and it just won't matter. I mean, this was kind of a last resort. Like, they, I think they've been very creative. So a good solution that they played with with Maker's Forty Six, right? It's basically just Maker's Mark that they threw some cedar chips in. And let's sit for another three months. That's all the difference is. Not a huge deal. But they could do more of a markup on it. And I think after this, you'll probably see them do more, you know, twists with the brand. Like Woodford has done with a lot of the, right. a lot of the bourbon. The Woodford's Sonoma, not the, yeah, but with the, the Sonoma uh, Chardonnay cask. Oh, my God. You're saying it's really good. It's very good. Joe's having a moment. Joe's just, just having a moment. Uh, while Joe is having a moment, I'll just mention that in addition to following Market Foolery on Twitter, you can also email us. Radio at fool.com is the way to get a hold of us. Uh, email from Eric Wallace. I'd like to ask for a book recommendation for stock valuation. My goal is to get a better understanding of how analysts and investors arrive at the uh, at the price of a particular stock. Uh, we haven't given out investing book recommendations in a little while. Matt, what do you got for uh, for not just stock investing, but in particular, something that's good on valuation? Sure. Well, I I have a really, an oldie, but a really goodie, uh, Quality of Earnings by Thornton O'Glove. You know, it's not a pure valuation book. Like, it's not going to really show you how to, how to model or, you know, to try to get the intrinsic value of a company you're analyzing. But I think it tells you, it shows you kind of where those earnings are coming from and how this company is making money. And I think you have to determine that. You have to understand that before you can 
do better at valuation. So Quality of Earnings by Thornton O'Glove, certainly one of my favorite books. It's a great book. Yeah. Joe, what do you got? Two little books. Uh, the little book on valuation by Oswald the Motorin. Um, he's a fantastic professor from NYU, and I'm quite sure I always butcher his last name, so apologies. But he's an incredible mind on valuation. I'd say next to Michael Mobison, he might be the, the single best mind on valuation today. Uh, his writing is great, and he has some very large textbooks on the subject, which I've read. Most people don't need to get into that level of detail. This book is basically just a hyper-condensed version of that. It's a great starting point if you want to get into building models on your own. Okay. Joe Mager, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.